A listener's note. The following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature, and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Think about some of the most high-profile historical criminal cases. Ones that date back to the 1800s, like Jack the Ripper, or the outlaws of the Wild West, and even more recently, the Golden State Killer. In each of these cases, police use sketches to try to identify the offenders. A lot of the early drawings were fairly crude, more like artist renditions of what evil looked like versus accurate depictions of what witnesses saw. But over the years, these drawings have dramatically improved. Even now, police agencies all over the world use sketches when they don't know who committed the crime, when there's no surveillance video, only witness or victim accounts. I've talked about these composite sketches in previous episodes. They can make a big difference in an investigation. I was very excited because as we did that talk, I saw this guy sitting at the bu- on top of the garbage can, the plastic garbage can, amongst 20 other people waiting for the bus. And uh, he had a shaved head, but it certainly he, he looked a lot like my drawing. They can also create huge problems if the sketches are too vague. Probably from, from day one that the composite drawing was released, we were backlogged by 500 tips for the next two years or more. I'm Nancy Hickst, a crime reporter for Global News. Today on Crime Beat, a special look at the art of forensic composite drawings. This is Drawing Out a Suspect. Ren Lafreniere is retired now, but for 35 years, he was an officer with the Calgary Police Service. 20 of those were as a detective. He's a tenacious investigator and spent many years working in the sex crimes unit. That included work on several high-profile historical cases. During his time with CPS, Lafreniere was also a skilled composite sketch artist, a talent that really grew out of frustration. For years, Lafreniere said he would look at the sketches that were released to the public. He said they were too basic, not even close to lifelike. So one day, he questioned an officer who was creating a sketch. I kind of went at this investigator, well, how many times do we identify guys from from these types of uh, ident picks? And he said, well, I don't know. All I know is I put them out there and we put them on bulletins. And uh, if we get lucky, we get lucky. I said, but have you ever heard of anybody coming back and saying, hey, that ident photo you put up there actually put us on on line to this bad guy. We caught him and he submitted to it or whatever. And it never happened. In in all the years I was on the job, that as a a, young officer and a street guy growing up and seeing these things, just hating them. Historically, Lafreniere said those sketches were created using a kit. They had this old ident kits that you could throw together and flip these eyes and noses and mouths uh, over top of a selected head shape. And it would never look human because it never, the lines of these things never actually melded together. So you, it was a really disjointed, like a, I don't know, a Picasso picture really because the eyes never looked proper. Uh, they didn't fit on the nose and the cheekbones properly. Lafreniere felt he could do better. 
It's not because he was trained as an artist at the time, though he does have some natural artistic talent. When I was a kid, I was born in Winnipeg and uh, I was a big comic reader as a kid and I would sit for hours after school. I, I remember my mom said, run home to watch Batman and Robin and you know, just the whole superhero thing was the coolest thing for me. So I would draw, I would draw Batman, I would draw Superman, you name it. And I got very good at it actually. And so my mom decided that, well, you know what? I, I think uh, she she called me Rembrandt, not Rembrandt, but Rembrandt. She, at nine years old, she, uh, she put me into this uh, painting course at a high school and uh, so, you know, I didn't really care for it because I had to walk there at night, around nine at night. And the first thing I get there is 40, 50-year-old people in this. There's like 20 of them all here. have <laughs> this nine-year-old kid sitting at an easel with a bunch of paints. And they give me a picture of, uh, I think it was actually a BAMP scenery of some sort with trees and mountains and all that and a lake. And so the guy said, here, these are the paints and we'd like you to uh, see what you can do. And uh, take this home and, and we'll come back in a week and try to put together the best you can on this painting. So, and when I went home, I did it that night. I think I did it within three hours. I paint. I just wanted to get, get rid of it. So I copied the picture and did the painting and it looked pretty damn good. And uh, when I went back a week later, uh, the teacher accused me that my parents or somebody else had painted this painting. And uh, which I thought was very funny, but anyways, I, I, the guy said, you did this? I said, yeah. And he said, well, we, we need to roll in classes. And I said to my mom, I, I, I don't want to do painting. I just like drawing. Like, that's what I like. And, and, and so my mom, for the life of me, she just hated that, that I, I didn't go in that direction. But I, I, I just wasn't for me. So from that point on, as a kid growing up, and then at, at 10, I moved to Calgary. And uh, like I say, as the fate would have it, I become a cop. And, and just um, I just finally got tired of looking at these horribly bad composites that were put out there. So Lafreniere gave it a try. And even with no training at all, he said his drawings were successful in creating tips and helped identify the suspect depicted in several of his drawings. So I had researched uh, what type of training courses I can take. And one of the first one was FBI training that they did it, uh, have done it for the last uh, 30, 40 years. And they, they train uh, Secret Service members, uh, agents to uh, learn to do composite drawing, FBI officers who have the ability to take that course as well. So I put in to uh, do composite drawing. And it was an ex- it was an expensive course, and I had to justify to the deputy. And uh, one of the things said, well, why? why are you, what makes you so special? Think of what I could do if I can draw properly, if I can draw a face that has the right structure and distances between eyes, nose, and mouth, uh, hairline shading, stuff that I, I knew instinctively as, as a kid drawing, but not enough to realize uh, how much better I could get at my drawings and how much better they might be and more realistic for people to uh, use them in investigations going forward. That's when the Beltline Rapist struck in Calgary. Yeah, I, that's the one that kind of put me over the top with management to justify <laughs> an expensive course to send me to the States to get these courses. Uh, and what happened in that was, again, the investigators were uh, extremely pressured. we got to catch this guy before he kills somebody. Lafreniere did two sketches in that case, one with a witness who didn't really get a good look. That sketch was never released. Then he did a second sketch with one of the victims, the second woman who was sexually assaulted. But when the second one happened is when 
that's when, you know, stuff hit the fan and they said, we, we want you to do one with this, but the victim's so traumatized that you're going to have to do it under hypnosis, which I thought, well, whatever, like uh, I'm willing to try anything. So we ended up having to set up a, a video camera so that there was no suggestions to me from me to the victim on, on behalf of what the drawing should look like. So if you can imagine, um, I'm sitting in the room and the victim's in a, in a hypnotic state and I have to write my questions on a piece of paper, hand it to the uh, psychiatrist who will ask, can you describe the shape of the offender's face? And so that's where you start. I start started with, uh, you know, was it oval? Anyways, we get to a point where this is the shape of the face, fairly round head, and then start plotting the eyes, nose, ears, and mouth. And so about an hour in, I'm asking, you know, again, to the victim to describe more, and she's at a point where she can't remember anything else. So I, I say to the doctor, can we, leave, uh, can we leave the room? We go out, and I, I talk to her, and I say, listen, doctor, I know this is, this is my version of what she's telling me the bad guy looks like, but it's not her version because she hasn't looked at it. And she's very, it was problematic for her because she, she's so traumatized that I don't know if I want to, I might have to bring her into a deeper state, you know, so that she doesn't even realize it's her looking, it's like looking through a TV screen at something that's happening to her, but it's not her. I said, well, let's do it because I need her to open her eyes and I need her to look at this because if she can't tell me that that's the guy, there's no point in putting this drawing out because it's not going to help anybody if she doesn't say, oh, that's, that's the guy that attacked me. So that's what they did. The second victim looked at Lafreniere's sketch and helped him fine-tune it. And when she sat beside me now, got off the couch that she was on, sat beside me and looked at the, uh, the drawing, she was able to help me. I had the hairline all wrong. I had the nose was too small. Her, his eyebrows weren't thick enough. The shading of his chin was off, I remember. Just all those details and his lips. And so for 45 minutes, I I corrected what I thought she described to what she knew was the offender. Yeah. And then she said, that's, that's him. That's the man that attacked me. And I, and I felt pretty confident in that. Um, so once that, once, she, once a, a victim or a witness says, that's it, that's what the guy looks like. I don't have to do anymore. I don't touch it. I don't, you know, it, it is what it is at that state. And so within two days of releasing that he had been identified from a number of sources to the sex crimes unit and uh, sure enough, lo and behold, after a gum test, he turns out to be the guy. If you've listened to the two episodes about this case, Surviving a Predator, and more recently, How Carly Survived a Predator, you'll recall how important the composite sketch was in the investigation. The second victim, whose identity is protected by a court-imposed publication ban, remembers Lafreniere. I feel like the sketcher did really good because that it's like even the things he asked, it was like, I don't know how he did it. Amazing. I think it was just the way he posed the questions and he was asking very like specific questions about his eyes. And then also when I started, like when he let me look at it, he changed little things. He's like, are you closer, farther apart, like darker, like eyebrows, this, that. So he was able to tweak it. And it's quite amazing how we got there, but um, no, it wasn't traumatic or anything like that. And when I saw the sketch, it wasn't like it shocked me or it brought me back any memories. I was actually pretty pleased that we got something close to what he actually looked like. 
for a composite artist, I think that's the highest praise you can get, right? Not that you're looking for praise because you just want to catch the bad guy, but to know that you're on the right track, that when you're dealing with a victim of a violent offense like that, you want to, you know, you have to really be cognizant of and empathetic to what they're going through and realize that you, you don't want to be pushing these people for details if they don't have them and give them an opportunity to recall that stuff in some of the most difficult and violent circumstances that they've been involved in, right? And the funny thing is that she's able to remember that because after the doctor snapped her fingers, literally, like you see on TV, uh, she came out of it and she had no idea she'd just been talking to me. And I had moved away from her on the couch so she didn't wake up to me sitting beside her. And But she seemed refreshed and, and, and she certainly wasn't scared by the picture. And at that point, I had covered the picture after she we'd sat down under hypnosis to do it um, so that she wouldn't be terrified after she's out of that seeing it maybe putting her in a panic state so i was able to kind of hide that drawing from her after that point and of course she had seen it in the news and stuff like that and, and commented to the the investigators about how close she thought that that drawing was if you put the sketch and the photo of wafid Dallah, the beltline rapist side by side it's an incredible likeness and at that time, Lafreniere had no official training to do composite sketches. But when you compare that drawing with some of his work after he was formally trained by the FBI, it's incredible to see how far he's come. On the website that I went to, they showed, for example, a, a person who couldn't draw a happy face properly. And then at the end of this course, how they were drawing pretty darn good pictures. And I thought, well, if I could take what I have now... And, and learn from them, I could probably get 100% better and make these things more realistic. And, and again, offer that, that opportunity to, to an investigator to be able to identify an offender on, on any major case. It turns out creating sketches of criminal suspects isn't so much about art, but really more about science. Oh, yeah, there's a, there's a, a huge degree of science involved in it um, that our averages in our face in terms of uh, generation to generation, uh, skeletal measurements of eye sockets to nose bones to mouth openings and ab like cheekbones, all those things are measured, have been measured by these FBI artists. Well, I, I can tell you that the averages to every human face are the same. Like the eyeballs are, are the same width apart. There's no, there's no set uh, uh, group that has a specialized a set of eyeballs that doesn't sit where they should on their face structurally from their forehead, top of their forehead to the, to where the eyes sit, to where your nose meets and your mouth and so forth and your chin line. I mean, other than some minor uh, averages that a person might have in their face, maybe a small chin that's, you know, it's not common or uncommon, but traditionally those things all line up. And if you structurally put that uh, drawing together, you're going to have a better opportunity to put together a proper face. Interestingly, even though we all look different, there is a formula to the measurements on our faces. The reason why most drawings fail is because they don't look human. And once you lose that human element to the drawing, it, it, if you put that out there, people see it as nothing more than an oddity. And it looks so odd, some of these drawings, that they don't look real. And people say, well, that looks like an alien. Why would they even put that out there? right? And what happens is I ended up having to start with a set scale in terms of the shape, the size of the head that you start with, uh, in terms of the facial features, where, you, where your eye lines uh, line up, 
that you have to have a three eye, five eyeballs width. So from the side of your head is one eyeball width to your, your first eye. Then from that eye to the, the middle of your nose to the next eye is another eyeball in, in that and then an eyeball on the side. So can you imagine? So you ended up having to draw five sets of eyes across the width of this face. And then you would um, erase the eyeballs on both sides and the one in the middle of the nose. And if you, if you get that right and you plot those eyes right, the recognition factor for a human being to see that drawing will see that as that looks like a human being to me. That to me looks like a face I would recognize. Lafreniere said more than knowing how to draw, a lot of composite sketching is having an eye and memory for details. The first handbook I had on my first course was literally a study. I'm sure it was about an inch and a half thick. And I, and of course, I voraciously read through it because I wanted to I wanted to go from A to B on this and know and understand it before I went for the next day for drawing. They give you is an FBI handbook of uh, facial features. And one of the things you have to do when you're on this course is they give it to you and they tell you, look through this, like take it home tonight and look through this book and you tell me if you recognize anybody in these books. And as Faye would have it, they had guys like Jeffrey Dahmer, John Wayne Gacy, all these guys. And so they would have like a black uh, mark bar over his eyes. And if you recognize that, then you have good recognition factor because you can, and I mean, these guys have been in the media and stuff like that over the years, uh, and um, Ted Bundy and guys like that. And even though his eyes were covered, I recognized him as John Wayne Gacy. So if you think about that, your mind tracks that image. And I could draw John Wayne Gacy from memory if I needed to, knowing what he looks like in my own mind. So you have to have that pattern formation. You have to be able to recognize that and be able to put lock it in your head and know, okay, this guy has a cleft in his chin that's you know, belongs to John Wayne Gacy or whoever. As soon as his formal FBI training was complete, Lafreniere began to put his new skills to the test. And each time he spoke with a witness or a victim, he took his FBI handbook of facial features with him so they could pick out the correct eyes, nose, cheekbones, or hairline. And that really helped him fine-tune each drawing. Then yet another serial rapist surfaced in Calgary. In 2006, a man known only as the Falcon Ridge Rapist terrorized a Northeast Calgary community. He grabbed complete strangers and sexually assaulted them. I remember covering this case. Women in that community lived in fear, never knowing when this violent rapist would strike again. Lafreniere did several sketches in the case. The first drawing was with the help of a woman who was attacked at night. It's a dark drawing. It's a black baseball cap, and it's on a black background. I'm not sure why the investigator later decided to put it on a black background, because it even seemed more sinister to me. That same victim called me up a couple of weeks after that and said she wanted to apologize because she thought she had demonized that drawing because she was just terrified. And the darkness seemed to be all around her when the attack occurred. So that's kind of the vision of what she put out there. And that, and that's not any, you know, I mean, she did the best she could under that circumstance. I, I felt for her because I, even when she called me, I could tell that she was terrified about that whole event and how she had internalized that. And she was depressed about it. She was upset about it. And like I said, she was nice enough to contact me a couple of weeks later and say, listen, I don't know if that's really a great drawing of the guy that attacked me only because I can't get that dark vision out of my mind. And I don't know if I've given you enough 
Uh, I know I've got to look at his face, but do you think I can recall it? And I was almost tempted to maybe put her under hypnosis. And, and at the time it was just, it wasn't, it wasn't thought to be a good idea just because of her, the way she was traumatized. Um, so that's, that's drawing number one in that event. It turned out there was another victim. This time it was an attempted sexual assault. This victim who was attacked in daylight uh, gave me what I thought was a very excellent drawing, like where she sat with me and she was, she became tearful when I completed that drawing. She, she said, that's the guy that, that's the guy that did that to me, the boy next door, that 18 year old, 20 year old kid, uh, the haircut, everything. And then, uh, now do you know what you're kind of looking for, right? That 18 to 20 year old boy next door. So how she described him and those facial features on that kid aren't going to change differently other than maybe again, shave his head, grow a beard, those types of things. So he's not identified. The victim that was attacked during the day got a clearer look at the offender. And the sketch showed the boy next door, a clean-cut, average-looking young man. As you heard earlier, the victim who helped with the first sketch said she demonized her attacker, and that came through in the drawing. I remember doing a story with Lafreniere the day that second sketch came out. I was standing outside a central location to all of the attacks, a 7-Eleven, and I was holding a copy of the sketch. I was approached by someone who looked exactly like the drawing. I made a comment and he took off. But here's what happened next. Here's one of the things I'd been in touch with was a FBI profiler friend of mine who uh, we had discussed a number of things. And one of the things was that the offender lived in the area and lived very close to the attack sites. Uh, one victim lived across from the 7-Eleven one victim had, and had walked down the block when she was attacked. The victim, second victim or third victim in the case had come all the way from her uh, uh, building to go to the 7-Eleven uh, to get some smokes and, and, and orange juice one in the morning, right? I mean, and she became that the, the third victim of the offender. And again, how did that all happen? Why did he attack her directly behind the 7-Eleven. So all these things came into play. And what happened was when I got the drawing and we met uh, in the parking lot and all the media was there, uh, sure enough, uh, the victim in the first offense uh, said that her attacker was sitting on a plastic garbage can at a bus stop kitty corner crossing a 7-Eleven. And he'd asked her for a smoke first before he attacked her. And um, I was very excited because as we did that talk, I saw this guy sitting at the butt on top of the garbage can, the plastic garbage can amongst 20 other people waiting for the bus. And uh, he had a shaved head, but it certainly he, he looked a lot like my drawing. And I had a copy with me and I had a, one of the analysts, the, the uh, sex crimes analyst with me, because she wanted to see the physical amount of walking the offender did. So as I, as we finished our interview with you, I drove to the bus stop and identified myself. And as fate would have it, this guy identified himself as a certain individual who lived right behind the 7-Eleven. And uh, he asked me if I was going to arrest him right there and then. I said, no, I just, would you like to give me a DNA sample? He said, nope, and got on the bus and drove off. And I was, uh, as fate would have it, tips came in. And the same offender that I spoke to at the bus stop was the same offender that I ended up later arresting from a, a Crime Stoppers tip where he admitted he was the Falcon Ridge rapist. The offender turned out to be 21-year-old Andrew Ori Jefferson. 
He was sentenced to six and a half years in jail and was released in 2013. But since then, he's had more trouble with the law. He's been in and out of jail ever since. That case really highlights how much of an asset a good drawing can be in an investigation. But what happens when there's a really generic drawing? You'll recall the case of Kelly Cook, the backup babysitter. In 1981, when the teenager was abducted and murdered, police released a composite sketch of the person they believed was responsible, a man who went by the name Bill Christensen. That perhaps was was um, uh, a bit of the problem here, is that when the composite drawing was released, we were just flooded then with, with tips. Uh, so-and-so looks similar to the composite drawing. Probably from, from day one that the composite drawing was released, we were backlogged by 500 tips for the next two years or more. Every one of those tips had to be investigated for fear key information would be missed or overlooked. We probably would have been better off if we had not released the composite drawing because unfortunately now, once we have all of these tips, we, we have to follow through on them. We can't just ignore them. So we plowed an awful lot of resources into following up on the tips uh, as opposed to concentrating more on the, the key investigation itself. Would you say that the tips based on the composite kind of led nowhere? Oh yes, absolutely, I would say it led nowhere. Yeah, we, um, by the time I left the investigation, uh, um, by the time I left Calgary in 1990, we had already interviewed 2,200 suspects the vast majority of them would be look similar to the composite drawing. I've seen that sketch. Yeah, I've, and I, I think it's horrific um, because what you do is you damage that case. If that's not a good drawing, if it's not a real representation of what the suspect might have looked like. Lafreniere can't help but wonder how different that investigation could have gone if the sketch was not so generic. If you don't do a proper drawing, your your investigation takes a different uh, vein completely because it's not it's not a proper sketch. It's not actually indicative of what the offender looked like. So yeah, I, I, I when I've seen them on TV and I, I think, well, geez, who drew that? Was that in the dark? Like <laughs> I make these kind of funny comments to myself, and even my wife will say, well, that doesn't look like drawings you've done. I say, no, I don't take. I'm not taking credit for that. That's not mine. Um, and and again, it's a it's a skill set. So here here's the thing. Think about this, uh, Nancy. When I first started, I probably did. Um, I would say probably 50 to 60 drawings a year on average. When I finally got back with my courses, I was in high demand. Like, and I remember my staff started saying, well, hey, you got time to work on your cases? Like, I said, you know, I, I never said no to an investigator. If they needed help on an investigation and it might help solve a violent crime, I, I made the time. And, and I got so good at it that I could, I would pre-plot my drawing with all the averages. So once I, the person sat and down with me, it was like, boom, 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 let's put this on here. And I, I'm very good at, good at shading now because I've done it so much. If a sketch is scientifically created, it makes it difficult for criminals to hide in anonymity. Here's another example. An unknown sex offender was on the loose in Calgary in 2008. And I think the one that I have is the, the, uh, the Dolan case um, where the victim was attacked and I did a drawing with her six hours after her attack. And for her, it was visceral. And she was so good as a witness to put that picture together. And within 
hours uh the guy's mother had called up and i mean if, i don't know if you have that drawing but if you do put them side by side i think that's one of my best drawings and that to me she was in a life and death situation and you think that and he kept telling her not to look at him but she looked at him she was defiant and she made sure she got a look this is one of the cases i'll be sharing on a future episode of crime beat and uh she knew that if she was going to survive it she would want to be able to identify that guy again and to me that was one of my I think a really good drawing because it it certainly it pinpointed us as to, okay, here's our guy. Now we can put all the resources towards him. As Lafreniere's sketches became more and more instrumental in solving cases, it became harder and harder to juggle his duties as a detective. You know, here's the thing. I was doing sex crimes cases. I was doing sex crimes cold case. I was doing homicide interviews. I was doing drawings for any, it didn't matter, street level constables. If you had a case that you needed a drawing on, I made time. And I, so at the point, I kind of got run ragged. And that's when I kind of went to my inspector and said, maybe there's other people that might want to do this too, because I'm not going to be here forever. And so that's ultimately what ended up happening. There were four other people trained on that. Now retired, Lafreniere still finds himself studying the people he sees every day, as if he's preparing to do a drawing. I've been in a few uh, uh, road rage incidents over the year where you drive and also a guy cuts you off and you know you get pleasantries to each other or through the mirror and then the guy the guy pulled over and wanted to fight me in the middle of the street one day and I just I made a mental check and I said you know I'm not going to get out because if I do you know it's not going to be good and uh, I just tell him to get back in his vehicle and drive off but I made a ment- I not only made a mental note I had that seared into my face that if I needed to I'd be able to draw that guy I would I would know in a minute. You might be wondering, with the COVID-19 pandemic and face masks, how that changes how Lafreniere sees people. And it's funny you mention that because I, uh, whenever I'm driving or I'm in, I'm shopping. And, I, and it's now all we see is people's eyebrows, <laughs> right? We don't, you know, with the masks on, we don't see anything else. But I notice eyebrows. I notice the shape. I notice the size, the thickness, the, the way they tail off, all those little uh, crevices, you know, the little... Uh, uh, marks you get from your brow, your brow. How many? I, I, I funny. Enough, I count those sometimes on people because it, it, it's a sign of stress. You see how many people have lines in their forehead. Figure that guy must be miserable in life. And I make a little mental note. So yeah, I as an artist, I'm always looking for those unique features that kind of set you apart from the other human being beside you. I often find myself memorizing the people I see. It's just something I do likely because I've covered hundreds of crime stories and I'm always subconsciously preparing to be a witness. That made me wonder if Lafreniere had any tips on how to remember certain things that could help police in creating a sketch. He said, the reason that's a hard skill to learn is because most times when you're a victim or a witness to a crime, it's incredibly stressful and traumatizing. The first thing that kicks in is a survival instinct, right? So how do you, you can't really prepare for that. I, I would like to think that as a witness, if you're outside of that zone of violence, and even then you have witnesses who are traumatized by what they see when someone else is being attacked. And it's very difficult to slow down that process in your mind. And I mean, as as, an, as a police officer, I go to any number of violent offenses, and it's like you you learn to have to slow down what's going on so you can take in everything that's going on so you're not missing something on the side so you're but you prepare your mind for that as an as a police officer that's what you're engaged hyper you you're hypersensitive when you go to a call your instincts are there but when you're 
you know, you're walking along the street and all of a sudden you see a violent crime. It is shocking. It is difficult. And yet those same people after they, they're in a quiet place and they're, uh, you know, the, the danger is no longer there. They, they can sit back and you can try to get them to focus on what they saw. I, I just, I don't know if there's an, uh, an actual formula to, to say to people, this is what you want to keep an eye on when, when this violence is happening to you. You're just, you're in it and you have, you deal with it to survive it. And then later on, that's when you can go back in your memory and decide, yeah, I, I do remember aspects of this person. I remember the anger in his face. I remember how his mouth looked when he cleansed his teeth, those types of things. He did say there are certain features people tend to remember most. I can tell you that from victims of violent crime, they always focus on the eyes. And the eyes are the, the, the window to the soul type of thing. And I have had many witnesses and victims of those types of violent crimes that it's seared into their brain what that person's eyes were. More often the color, the, the darkness, the sometimes how wild their eyes look. And, I, and I've done that where I, the victim says, this is the way I saw him. And people in everyday life who see that person might have a temper, might see them see the same set of eyes and recognize that. So I've even put that in my drawings too, where the kind of the wide-eyed look. For those who are wondering if they can become a composite sketch artist, Lafreniere said it's something that can be learned even without any artistic talent. I actually, when I was on my courses, there were people, there's a girl who was a, uh, a 911 dispatcher and it was always in her heart of hearts to want to be a sketch artist, like for composite drawings for the uh, police. And, um, and and not one of those kind of a wannabe hanger on. She was generally wanted to do that. And uh, I met her the first day in my course. And I, and I have to say, she was one of those people that couldn't draw a happy face right. Like, you know, circle with the two dots and a mouth. And um, I thought, oh, my God, how is this woman going to get through this course? <laughs> and yet it's so scientifically easy if you can if you can use the concepts that they have to uh, put those eyes in where they, they need to be. And, and the funny thing is recognition comes from the eyes first. If you can get those eyes right, everything else falls into place after that. And by the end of that week, she was drawing pretty darn good drawings. During Lafreniere's well-established career, he was the recipient of the prestigious Calgary Police Chiefs Award, which recognizes an outstanding act of courage or the rendering of valuable assistance to CPS in the preservation of law and order. Thank you for joining me for this special episode of Crime Beat. And thanks to retired detective Ren Lafreniere for his willingness to share his expertise with us. I'll post some of his sketches on my social media accounts for you to check out. And if you want to take some of Lafreniere's tips and try your hand at drawing, feel free to post on social media and use the hashtag CrimeBeatSketches so I can see them and I might even share the best ones. CrimeBeat is written and produced by me, Nancy Hickst, with producer Dila Velasquez. Audio editing and sound design is by Rob Johnston. Special thanks to photographer-editor Danny Lantella for his work on this episode. And thanks to Chris Bassett, the acting VP of National and Network News for Global News. I would love to have you tell a friend about this podcast, and you can help me share these important stories by rating and reviewing Crime Beat on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. 
You can find me on Twitter at Nancy Hickst, on Facebook at Nancy Hickst Crime Beat, and I'd love to have you join me for added content on Instagram at nancy.hickst. That's N-A-N-C-Y dot H-I-X-T. Thanks again for listening. Please join me next time. A gunman on the loose in a quiet coastal town. By morning, 22 people were dead. I'm Sarah Ritchie. I live in Halifax, and I'm a reporter for Global News. On my new podcast, 13 Hours Inside the Nova Scotia Massacre, we'll examine every hour of this tragedy to try and piece together what happened and what could have been done to prevent it. You can listen to 13 Hours Inside the Nova Scotia Massacre for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.